Does God choose people to be saved? Paul made it clear that he does. You just cannot avoid that from chapter 8. And as you're going to see in perhaps a little bit more uh, stringent detail, he's going to hit it again in chapter 9. But here's the thing. The problem that many of us have with the concept of the doctrine of election is that people forget the tension that is introduced concerning human responsibility. And this tension exists because on one hand, you have a sovereign God who has elective purposes. His foreknowledge is actually his foreordination. He knows who is going to be saved, not because of what he knows about their decision, but he knows who he's going to call to be part of the gift that he gives to the Son. No man comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. And then the Father gives to the Son those who come. And those who come, he will in no wise cast out. But then you come to this part of chapter 9, and Paul begins to embrace a different perspective that is really tough for us to justify. How do you bring these two truths together? That on one hand, there is a sovereign God who has an elective purpose, and then there is the human responsibility to respond in faith to the sacrifice that has been offered in the person of Jesus Christ, and to do that through an act of the will, where the decision is made to put trust in Christ as Savior. Aren't you glad you came today to hear the solution to this problem? Okay, well, your, your, your answers, <laughs> your, your responses is pretty uh, right on the money because I can't answer the two. It's a tension. It's a difficulty. But the Bible teaches both, and I think it teaches both for this primary reason. On one hand, we are introduced to the sovereignty of a God who is absolutely holy, who has an eternal plan that will not fail, that does not depend upon mankind. His plan will succeed. But in the midst of that, we have a responsibility on the human level that involves responding to the gospel of Christ accepting Him as our Savior, making a decision from our point of view, embracing the reality that Christ died for our sins, He was buried, and He rose again from the dead. That's our responsibility. And that is something for which we will be held accountable. The two coming together, I don't know. But here's what I do know. God gives me, and He gives you, the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and to impact the life of an individual with the truth of what Christ did for them by virtue of sharing the hope that we have in Christ, how that Christ died for their sins, he was buried, he rose again from the dead, and if you will trust him as your Savior, he will forgive your sins, give you eternal life. People that oppose the doctrine of election say, you people who believe in it, which would be me, you, you feel that you don't have a responsibility. 
And that's not true because the Bible teaches very clearly that we have a responsibility to communicate the gospel. But that responsibility does not become that which is fully on my shoulders because I can't convince anybody to put their trust in Christ. And what happens if I fail to share Christ with somebody that God has directed me to share the gospel with? Do they go to hell because I failed? No. But what happens? I have missed out on the opportunity to introduce them to the Savior. I do not receive the blessing of bearing fruit that would be spiritual life in the, in the life of an individual who trusts Christ. And I'm the loser. What God is allowing us to do is to be involved in His divine plan that includes His elective purpose which also requires a human response, and He allows me to be part of that, and He allows you to be part of it as well. I'm going to take it a step further. It's more than He allows it. He expects it. That's why people who listen carefully to the way we preach, yes, they're going to hear God's elective purpose, but they're also going to hear a presentation of the gospel and an invitation to receive Christ as Savior, which is no different from people who do not believe in election. Right? Have you been here for ten years and heard that? You know that that's the way it is. And what it is, people like to create straw tigers so they can knock them down. But it's not the reality. The reality is, I have a responsibility to share the gospel with you. Now that's not going to be my primary goal, because we are the church. And the primary goal is to proclaim the word of God so that the church will be built up and strengthened. But we know that from week to week, there will be people coming who don't know Christ as Savior. And quite frankly, I'd like to be part of their coming to know Christ. So I'll give the gospel. By the way, you've already gotten it. Did you all catch that? Gospel has already been given. And if the Spirit of God is at work in a person's heart, they will respond to the reality that Christ died for their sins. He was buried. He rose again from the dead. And they will understand that they should be embracing the reality of sin, the sin of their own life, of righteousness. They need a righteousness that's not their own. And of judgment, if they don't have that righteousness, they will be judged and cast out of the Lord's presence forever. Having said that, we come to the Apostle Paul who believed in election. Who also believed in personal evangelism. And he tells us that the person who wants to be involved in God's program, who wants to cooperate with God in reaching the world with the gospel of Christ, they are going to have certain characteristics of their lives that have to be demonstrated and manifest so that they can be involved in that participation. And the first thing he tells us is this. And if you're looking at the outline in your bulletin, which I wish you would, this week it's very, very short, very little that you have to fill in. But you'll see Roman numeral 1. And any good outline has to have a Roman numeral 2. But the problem is we won't get to Roman numeral 2 today, so we only have Roman numeral 1. So those of you who are um, very oriented to propriety, you'll understand why 
Roman numeral one is there, but there are a number of issues that are raised under number one. What is a characteristic of a person who has a heart's desire to reach others for Christ? The first is this. They have a heart that is filled with compassion. That compassion is based upon four different principles that he outlines here in the ninth chapter. The first is, there is a certainty of truth. This compassion is developed. And by the way, if you will stay with this, you might be saying to yourself, quite frankly, I don't really have that much compassion for the lost. You would probably never express that openly. I I know that. But the human condition is not inclined to move with great compassion for people that are lost. And, And you have to evaluate yourself. Do you really long to see people coming to know Christ as Savior? Some of you might. Some of you might not. And so those of you who might not, maybe within your heart you're saying, I wish I did have that compassion, but I don't. So how can I develop that? Well, Paul is going to show us how. The first thing is, you have to be convinced of the truth. The truth of the gospel of Christ. And what truth that is, is simply this. There are not many ways to come to God. There is one way. Those of us who are Christians, who are followers of Christ, do not worship the same God of the Muslim. Their God is no God at all. Because He is not the triune God who embraces the reality of three persons within a single Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We we, we can't be worshiping the, the, the same God. And here's what we know. In order to come to the true God, there's only one way to come. And we know that because of testimony. Whose testimony? The testimony of Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Is there a plurality of ways through which a person can come to know the true God? No. There's one. It's Christ. Peter, after the resurrection of Christ, declared this, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That's pretty exclusive. John said, He that believes on the Son has life, but he that does not believe on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Paul is now going to reiterate that. Turn just You may only have to turn back one page, and maybe not even that. Look at what it says here in Romans chapter 10, two very familiar verses, 9 and 10, where it says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And so the testimony of Christ and the disciples and the Apostle Paul all declare that there is one way of life. You better be convinced of that. 
you better understand that a person who does not trust in Christ as Savior has no hope of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. In addition to that, Paul understands that the gospel of Christ changes people. He, when Christ comes into an individual's life, their life changes. Could Paul himself give testimony to that? Look what he was. Before he was invaded by Christ, he was a persecutor of the church. He hated the church. He hated Christ. He was willing to put people to death because of their faith in Christ. He was willing to put women and children in prison and have them suffer because of their personal faith in Christ. And then he met the Savior. And everything changed. He loved the church. He loved the followers of Christ. And he watched the Lord change the lives of individuals on every surface upon which he traveled. Some of you could testify to that very thing, that the gospel of Jesus Christ changes people. It takes people who were murderers. And though they may have a debt to society, it changes them and causes them to have a heart of love. The love of Christ being shed abroad in their hearts. And now instead of hatred and murder, they love. The gospel of Christ that is shared with individuals who will accept Christ as their Savior brings about change. In fact, it changes people so much that they are willing to suffer for the truth of the gospel. When we read what the scripture says about Christ, obviously he knew exactly what it was that he was doing at the cross and the purpose for which he was giving himself in sacrifice. And the Bible tells us that he could despise the shame of the cross and the suffering that it would bring because of the glory that would follow. The disciples, to the best of our knowledge, and, and, and history has to teach us this, and so we, we can't look at, at history with the same confidence that we look at the Scriptures, which we know are God's Word. But history, if it has any accuracy at all, tells us that apart from Judas, who betrayed the Lord, and the Apostle John, all the other disciples gave up their lives for the cause of Christ and because of their belief. And they suffered horribly. The Apostle Paul did the same thing. We have read on a number of occasions the beatings that he took, the stoning that he went through, the willingness to go to sea, and, and on several occasions be shipwrecked and to be in danger morning, afternoon, and night of people who meant him harm. And he took it. Until that day, in the city of Rome, probably under the throne of Nero, Paul's life was taken from him. 
what would cause a person to do that? Absolute certainty that the message they were carrying was the truth. That's the message we have. Paul goes on to tell us that there is a second principle that's involved, and that is the appreciation of our redemption. Paul understood something about himself. The, the, the man who wrote what we're looking at today. And he, he said this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Have you ever felt that way? Some of you have. And, and, and some of you haven't. Because you would look at your life and say, well, I haven't been as violent as, as Paul. And, and I understand that. And yet, we have to understand that any violation of a holy God's standard is a sin that is condemning. Paul said, I know how sinful a man I have been. And he understood that sin was still dwelling within him. And we've seen a couple examples through the scriptures of the sin as it raised its head in the Apostle Paul's life. And there were were occasions where he had to deal with his own sin. But he knew this, that when a person trusts Christ as Savior, everything changes. Just imagine for a moment that you all are lost. You all have been. Some of you may still be. But let's just imagine, all of us are lost, which means at this point in time, in my spirit, I am dead. There is, as some have described it, a hole in my heart that only God can fill. And I try to fill that with a lot of other things. I try to fill that with a lot of activity. I try to fill that with relationships. I try to fill that with the accumulation of things. And I I try to fill that hole, but nothing seems to fill it. And I know that within me there is something missing. And the Bible tells us it's called life. And the moment I trust Jesus Christ as my Savior, I leave behind me the death that has engulfed my life and holds me captive and suddenly I am brought to the place of life where now that hole is filled and I have new life in Christ. And then I find out that Christ Himself dwells within me. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I find that I become part of the body of Christ and I am granted the opportunity to exercise spiritual gifts that God has given to me for the purpose of building up of the body of Christ. And so I look at all these changes and I realize that I have been given to Christ and here's what he says, and I give you eternal life and you will never perish, neither will any man ever pluck you out of my hand. All of a sudden. And do you know how much of that we deserve? None of it. None of it. It's all the grace of God. Not only giving us what we don't deserve, but giving us something far more than what we ever could possibly deserve. Paul understands and he appreciates the redemption that he has. 
And now he takes the truth and the redemption and he brings it down to the people whom he loves deeply. Paul was a Jew. He loved the Jews. And look at what he says here in chapter 9. He makes some statements that are rather incredible. He says this. He says, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Now what he begins to realize is this. There is going to be a certain doom for those who don't know Christ as their Savior. So he looks at them through the eyes of understanding there is one way that a person can have eternal life. That's through Christ. That he understands how much the gospel of Christ means to change us, to take us from being dead in trespasses and sins and moving us into the realm of life. And he puts us in this new position in Christ so that we are totally accepted in the beloved. And the Father looks at us through the eyes of a judge who sees the righteousness of his own Son and consequently can welcome us to glory when the time comes that we pass from this earth. And now he looks at those whom he loves and he says, you're lost. You're lost. Do you understand that there is doom? There there is coming a day in which you will hear, I never knew you, depart from me. And what happens? Paul says, unless your heart changes... You have no hope. And look at what he says there in verse 3. This to me is is really a very interesting verse. He makes a statement that is, in my opinion, a dangerous statement and one that I would say, oh my goodness, how could you say something like that? But But he has just told us, all day long, my heart is breaking for my own countrymen. That's, that's the, the, the tense that's being used there. This is a continual thing in his life that is happening. And he, and he is feeling this, this terrible sense of the coming doom that his people are going to experience. And then he says this, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. This isn't the first time that a statement like that was made. When, um, when the Lord uh, worked his plan through a variety of different individuals, there were people who, who gave very, very similar responses. Uh, Moses made the statement. He said, when the children of Israel had fashioned the golden calf and God was going to bring judgment upon, uh, down upon the people of Israel, uh, he said, uh, Moses said to the Lord, rather than, than bring that judgment upon them, remove my name from your book. Now, what book is he talking about there? My personal opinion is that he was talking about the book of physical life. Take my name out of the book, kill me, rather than bring judgment down upon your people. In addition to that, we have another situation where, you you remember when um, Joseph was sold into slavery, 
and and the the children of Jacob came down into Egypt to get food because of the famine that was taking place. And on the, I believe it was the second trip that uh, the brothers came. It was because uh, Joseph said to the brothers who didn't know it was Joseph, next time you come, when you come again, you better bring your younger brother who said you have a younger brother. There's a whole long story with this, and I can't go through all that now. But Benjamin is the beloved of his father. And Benjamin comes down. And Judah had said to the father, uh, I'm going to see he gets back. And you can hold me responsible if he doesn't make it back. Because uh, Jacob was real worried that something bad was going to happen <laughs> to Benjamin. How would you like to be the other brothers? <laughs> you guys go ahead. <laughs> Protect Benjamin. Not good parenting. Benjamin now is standing before Joseph. And Joseph says, you guys can all go back, but Benjamin's staying here. Judah, knowing what he had promised his father, said this, rather than him, take me. Because I promised my father he would come back. There was another situation where David lamented the death of his son Absalom, the rebellious son. And he said, oh, that I would have died instead of my son, Absalom. Paul is saying, I would give myself up for Israel if that were possible. But here's the thing. It's not possible. Paul was expressing a desire that could not be fulfilled. And, And there are parents that do that sort of thing today. Maybe some of you have been down this road where you you have watched your child in illness and you have said within your heart, Oh God, give me the illness and spare my child. You know it's not going to happen. But it's your desire anyway. That's what Paul is saying. Uh, it kind of works the other way sometimes, too. Um, when my son was young, he had this thing on the side of his head that needed to be removed. And so my wife said I should take him to the doctor. And so I did. And we're in the doctor's room. It's, it's a little surgical room. And uh, Matthew is lying on his side. And they take the needle and they begin to try to numb the area where they're going to be removing this like mole type thing and they're sticking the the needle in there and before they began to cut Matthew is lying on his side and I'm standing there with him and the tears are going down over his eyes like this and he looked up at me and he said dad he said I wish it was you and not me Honest truth is, I do too. I wish it had been me. Now, it was not a big deal. It was some momentary pain, and then the issue was settled. But I would have rather had it be me. You all understand how that is? Paul says, I'd rather be accursed from the Lord himself, if that were possible, so that the people of Israel could be saved. But the sad reality is that couldn't happen. 
They had the responsibility to respond to the gospel. He had the responsibility to give it to them. He concludes with this. When you come down to verse 4, he tells us what, what I've kind of put in a, a package, that God's ways are mysterious. He does things in very mysterious fashions. For example, you would expect the people who have had the greatest opportunities to accept what Christ did and embrace Christ as their Savior. And so here's where Paul says, You guys, Israel, do you understand? You have had the greatest opportunity to put your trust in the one that the Father has sent to be the propitiation for your sins. Look at what he describes here. He says this, You you were God's... I'm going to paraphrase as we go. You were God's chosen people, yet... You rejected him in spite of the fact that he looked upon you and chose you. You were adopted collectively, not into the realm of salvation, but a people through whom God would do his work, who would be exposed to the truths over and over and over again. And he begins to tell us what those truths were. You had the Shekinah glory. You saw the pillar of fire. You saw the cloud saw what what God did to protect you, whether it was in the wilderness or in the tabernacle or in the temple itself, the glory of God was physically manifested so you could see that. In addition to that, you received the covenants through Abraham, through Moses, through David, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and there were others that God gave where God made promises to the people of Israel. You received the law. You understood the righteous demands of a holy God. And you were supposed to understand that you can't keep the law. You needed someone who could keep the law to pay the penalty that you deserve for breaking the law. And that was done in Christ. He goes on to to, to add to that that they had the temple worship. They would give the sacrifices that all were pointing to the coming one who would be the final Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. They had the promises of the Messiah. He is coming. He will be born in Bethlehem. He will come at a certain time. All you have to do is follow the years that God has given through the prophecies and you can tell the time in which He is coming. You had the patriarchs who gave you examples of men of faith. You had the human ancestry of Christ Himself. And with all of that, you don't believe. People who often have the greatest opportunities don't trust Christ. Can you think of family members of yours? Some lament children who have been exposed to the gospel from the time they were infants and they still have not trusted Christ. And it hurts. And then there are those that have great opportunity who don't respond. But here's the mystery. Sometimes people who have the least exposure to the gospel of Christ suddenly have their eyes opened by the divine providence of God where they say, ah, I get it. My sin has separated me from my Creator. Is there a way back? 
yes, Jesus paid for my sin. He died so that I might live. He rose again from the dead. I believe that. And they trust Christ. Sometimes the very first time they hear the gospel, when others have heard it throughout their entire lives, they hear it for the first time. And here would be the part that I'd lay before us today. They may hear it from you and believe. But they won't hear it from you if you don't share it. You might say, Pastor, I don't know how to share the gospel. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. If you know Christ as your Savior, you know exactly what He did for you. I was a sinner. I had no hope. But I saw Jesus one day through the pages of His Word. And I recognized in Him the perfect sacrifice that could give me life, could forgive my sins, could make me acceptable to the Father, and I trusted Him as my Savior, and He died for your sins too. And He was buried, and He rose again from the dead. Will you trust Christ? And you will be surprised. From time to time, someone will. Say, I I did such a terrible job in presenting the gospel. You give the gospel, you leave the rest to the Lord. Right? Paul says, in order to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, I've got to have compassion. And he shows us how that compassion develops. He takes us right down the list. And then he says this, We have the privilege of carrying the message of forgiveness and hope to a world that's dead in trespasses and sins. And all I would ask you is this. Would you ask the Lord to give you compassion for the lost? Would you pray and ask Him to bring into your pathway people who need the gospel? Pastor, I thought you were a Calvinist. You believe in election. Yep, yep. Calvinism, I don't know about that so much, but I believe in election. Yep, yep. But I also believe in human responsibility. And that responsibility is not merely mine on a Sunday morning, it's yours. Because I preach to the believer. You reach the unbeliever. By the way, so do I. Do you you get it? Do you get it? Will you make a commitment to reach out to the lost? You know what's really interesting? If every person in here that's a believer would win one person to Christ, and I use that word win with the understanding that only God can bring the person to Himself, and they came with you to church, we could seat everybody that you led, led to the Lord. Is there room? <laughs> Listen, the room would not be the issue. We, we would, if we ever had to do this, we'd go to two services. We'd go to three services. Whatever we would have to. But here's the problem. 
I'm not sure we're winning the lost. Will you? Will you? Let's stand. Father, Paul has given us the other side of the coin. And he's shown us that apart from your elective purposes, there is still human responsibility. And Lord, I I just, I can't bring the two of these together with a complete logical understanding. But I believe everything you've said about election, and I believe everything you've said about human responsibility. Father, I pray that you would give us, the people of Grace Baptist Church, a compassion, a desire to reach out to the lost and to introduce them to Christ. And then we pray, God, that by your sovereign, infinite capability, your Holy Spirit would enlighten their eyes to the truth of the gospel and many would come to Christ. Father, thank you for allowing us to be part of your plan. In Jesus' name, amen.